When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. Just a heads up, the following episode discusses transphobia, sexism, racism, physical violence, police violence, sexual assault, and suicide. Take care while listening. It's May 24th, 2019, exactly two weeks before Laylene Polanco's death. She returned to Rikers Island after spending over a week at Elmhurst Hospital's psychiatric prison ward. As Laylene waited in the main intake of the women's jail, an assistant deputy warden began an email thread about where to house her. Kate McMahon investigated Laylene's death on behalf of the Board of Correction, a watchdog agency. Kate read these emails and seized them as further evidence of the disorder Laylene experienced during her time at Rikers. Her journey through the jails and the different housing areas are pretty chaotic. She's bouncing between different transgender housing units, then she's in a transgender new admissions area. So it's clear, I think, from following her journey through these different housing areas and then being sent to the psychiatric ward and coming back that they didn't really know what to do with her. After Laylene arrived back at the women's jail, the assistant deputy warden emailed a request for her to be moved to another facility because of her previous conflicts in the jail's transgender housing units. Several correction officers were copied on the email thread, But most of the correspondence is between two people, Assistant Deputy Warden Jessica Rodriguez and Captain Rosemary Ellerby. Rodriguez suggested that Laylene be moved to general population in a men's jail. 
Obviously, this would never be on the table if Laylene was a cis woman. Captain Ellerby suggested instead that Rodriguez fill out the paperwork to house Laylene in protective custody at Rikers. We asked Robin Robinson, a former social worker in Rikers' LGBTQ plus affairs unit, why Ellerby would propose that. I'll try to explain as best I can, because even I have an issue with understanding it completely. When they are having an issue with a person in custody who has caused harm to them in some way, it could be physical assault, it could be related to gang violence, it could be a sexual assault, right? So if there is no other housing unit that would be safer for them, then they would be placed in protective custody. Robin thinks this actually would have been a workable option for Leilene. I think it would be a better situation because, you know, in protective custody, there are going to be other folks in the unit. In some facilities, there are what we are called unofficial LGBTQ housing units. So a lot of the folks were of the community. So that just made the environment safer. So had that been the case, I honestly think she would still be alive. But that's not what happened. This email thread would be a deciding factor in Laylene's fate. A few keystrokes between these decision makers would send her somewhere that put her life in danger. I'm Raquel Willis, and this is Afterlife. Episode 4, 41 Minutes. Two weeks before Laylene's death, Rikers officials were gathered on an email thread to decide where in the jail complex to house her. After a few ideas were floated, Assistant Deputy Warden Jessica Rodriguez replied to the group saying that, actually, Laylene owed days in solitary confinement. She was referring to a 20-day sentence in solitary that Laylene was assigned after her first fight at Rikers, but hadn't yet served. But Rodriguez couldn't just put Laylene in solitary right away. Correctional health staff had to approve the decision. Rodriguez wrote that a doctor said, due to the subject inmate's medical history, he would not be able to authorize a cell housing placement for Laylene. Another officer chimed in. We tried very hard to get inmate cleared, but mental health just won't clear her. David Shanus, Laylene's family's lawyer, says the conversation about Laylene and solitary should have ended there. Even under the jail's policy at the time, she was medically ineligible for solitary confinement, both because of her serious mental health diagnoses and because of her well-documented epilepsy. And that was really a no-brainer in terms of making someone ineligible for solitary confinement. Why? Because in solitary confinement, a person is locked in a box and away from everyone else. And obviously, if a person has a seizure disorder, they can 
become hurt, they can become incapacitated, they can die, and people won't be there to render aid. Captain Ellerby jumped back into the thread with some urgency and insisted they find housing for Laylene that night. Again, she brought up the idea of protective custody, and an application for Laylene's placement was submitted with the argument that she would be vulnerable in a general population unit. Officers also said Laylene told them she didn't want to be in general population. But the application was denied within hours. A captain who coordinated placements in protective custody said there isn't any evidence to substantiate or validate this claim, and that a fear of safety solely on an inmate's word is insufficient for placement. At this point, the officers deciding Laylene's fate are at a standstill. One officer asked the unit in charge of protective custody, where they think Laylene should be housed. The back and forth doesn't end that night. For five days, as they debated what to do, Laylene was returned to the transgender housing unit, New Admissions. This was a group of cells surrounding a common room, supposedly designed to be square one for new entries into the unit. But Kate told us this isn't an official housing area and isn't subject to proper supervision. Plus, Laylene was the only one in there. Not a safe situation for her. Here's Kate again. A transgender new admissions area, which is supposed to be an area you're in for a very short amount of time, but she was there by herself for up to five days. It's May 29th. 2019, 10 days before Laylene's death, and something very strange happens. Days earlier, one psychiatrist decided Laylene was in no condition for solitary confinement. Officers worked off that assumption, looking for other places to house Laylene. But then, input from a new mental health clinician appeared. We can't be certain why another opinion was sought, but this clinician approved Laylene for a type of solitary called the Restrictive Housing Unit, or the RHU. The officers just had to get one more sign-off, this time from a medical doctor. Here's lawyer David Shanus again. A medical doctor was asked Can this person be put in solitary in light of their seizure disorder? And they answered, yes. To me, if anyone were going to be held criminally accountable for Leilene's death, that's the direction I would have looked. The morning after this pretty baffling approval, Leilene was headed to the RHU. Certainly some very hard questions needed to be asked about how a doctor could have said that that was medically acceptable. The days of confusion over where to house Laylene underscore the violence that the carceral system can inflict on trans women and people of color. Laylene, like many in the system, was reduced to a series of charts, approvals, and emails 
an administrative task to get through instead of being treated with humanity. We knew that Leilene was a trans woman of color and that people like her are often getting the worst treatment in an already horrible place. But was her transness actually a cause of her death? It wasn't clear from the outset of this case. We saw basically all of the emails, the various memos going back and forth about this. And we found out that the answer was yes, it absolutely was. Because the lack of uh, available housing for trans inmates is what put pressure on these various corrections officials to find some place to warehouse her, uh, which they ultimately decided would be solitary confinement. And that ended up being a death sentence for her. A housing decision is not just something to be filed away among mountains of paperwork. It's a matter of life and death. And that's especially true for trans people. Cecilia Gentili experienced this firsthand. She's an activist and author who we've heard from throughout the series. She's been incarcerated in the past for sex work. And at one point when she was at Rikers, the DOC transferred her into the custody of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And because cis women refused to be housed with her, ICE officers moved her into solitary confinement, too. Can you talk a little bit about how that isolation, I mean, what that feels like maybe for folks who are unfamiliar? The fact that I was put in isolation was terrible, but the fact that I was put in isolation as a result of my sisters not allowing me to be with them, it's really sad. And then you have isolation on itself, right? And what it means to be in a room by yourself with your thoughts. And I have had a, a couple of moments with suicidal ideation during my life. There were not too many, but there were moments where I was like in a really bad moment in my life and, and I had the ideation. While in isolation in the middle of Manhattan, on Barrick Street, and I picture the whole execution of my plan, right? So that says a lot about what isolation can do to a person, right? It can really bring you to places where your life becomes secondary, where Dying could be the best choice. I hope that as hard as it is in words can somehow explain what isolation feels like. This is what Leilene was up against. This is where a doctor approved her to stay. 
there are health professionals like Dr. Homer Venters who feel that this should never be a part of their obligations. When security staff say they decide they want to punish somebody or put them in a solitary setting, they've declared to the world that's their intent. Dr. Venters worked at Rikers for eight years and has served as the chief medical officer for all New York City jails. He left the job in 2017, two years before Laylene's death, but has continued to advocate for better health policies behind bars. Although Correctional Health Services is technically independent from the DOC and officers at Rikers, health professionals there still face immense pressure from the jail to fall in line. Dr. Venters told me about instances where doctors and medical staff were verbally threatened by COs for trying to advocate for incarcerated patients. For an alone nurse or doctor or psychologist or social worker to say, stop, this is not a good idea, puts them at odds with a much more powerful set of forces that they may stand up to, but my experience is, especially over time, as you work more years in correctional settings, part of your survival calculus may be that you don't stand up in these settings. It's pressure like this that may have led a doctor to clear Laylene for solitary. Remember that email chain where officers insisted that Laylene owed days? One person said, quote, we tried very hard to get inmate cleared, but mental health just won't clear her. But then, suddenly, she was cleared. We worked hard on this idea that it is not the job of health staff to be part of the punishment of people. The effectiveness of health staff is really an important stamp of approval. The World Medical Association and other ethics organizations have long identified this as a problem. Our patients don't trust us, and they think that we're just part of the system that's harming them, and so they won't trust us with other important health issues later on. While working at Rikers, Dr. Venters witnessed the effects of solitary confinement up close. His office was right next door to a solitary unit. One of the things that surprised me most was descriptions of how these units sound. The office I had was in a little trailer on the edge of Rikers Island, and it was next to the Bing, which was the big solitary unit at OBCC. That's one of the men's jails. We would hear all day long the yells and screams of people who were in those five stories of solitary confinement. This juxtaposition of this old, uh, soon-to-be-washed-out trailer versus this big sturdy edifice, it gave a good sense of where the priorities were for the system. Dr. Venters made it a point to study the harmful effects of solitary confinement. These are profoundly dehumanizing settings. They're dehumanizing by design, the way they're structured, the way they're run. So the most acute is a solitary confinement unit where you have staff that are being told or asked to do things that are directly harmful to people. In one study, Dr. Venters and a team of other doctors and health professionals analyzed a quarter of a million jail admissions. 
they found that people who had been punished by solitary had an approximately seven times higher likelihood of self-harm. So yes, I think those circumstances, that's torture. With the reputation that solitary confinement has, the DOC has made it a point to say that Laylene's placement in the Restrictive Housing Unit, RHU, meant that she wasn't officially in solitary confinement. RHU is essentially a rebranding of solitary confinement. Similar euphemisms are increasingly common. Often, correctional settings will say, we don't do solitary confinement. But if you go into jails and prisons, you'll often find that there are new versions with different names. And what's pretty maddening is that these new versions of solitary might have a health label. And so the greatest example of this is the mental health watch cell, where a person has a mental health crisis and they are placed into a cell, locked cell by themselves, often without any clothes except for a suicide smock. And they might be there for days or weeks or months. And that is solitary confinement, but it's another version of solitary. You'll see names like segregated housing, isolation, room confinement, or behavior treatment units. At Rikers, it's called punitive segregation. And then there's the RHU, where Laylene was sent. In Kate McMahon's investigation of Laylene's death, she makes it clear that the RHU is solitary in everything but name. There is a lot of semantic arguing around the term solitary confinement. There are jail experts who will say that if you have more than two hours outside of your cell, that's not considered solitary confinement. And as you see in Laylene's case at the time when she was in the restrictive housing unit, technically the policy said that women in that unit had access to seven hours outside of their cell every day. They're using a very strict definition of what solitary confinement is to mean that you're inside of your cell for 22 hours a day. Technically, the RHU is for people who the DOC calls non-seriously mentally ill. These are people the DOC knows have mental illness, but has decided can still withstand isolation. People incarcerated in the RHU are supposed to get seven hours outside of their cells on weekdays and have access to some kind of therapeutic programming or so-called reintegrative activities. It's not necessarily like doing yoga in the yard. Matt Katz reports on Rikers for WNYC, New York's public radio station. Out-of-cell time could literally mean they're chained at the ankles and potentially cuffed to a desk, and they have to stay there, but they're technically out of their cells. I've seen, particularly at Rikers Island, out-of-cell time means they're just, like, on the other side of their cell, locked to a chair. That's maybe not solitary confinement because you're not locked behind bars anymore, but it feels like solitary confinement because you're also not interacting with anybody else and you're still restricted in your movement? Often, minimum requirements like showering or a potential medical visit are included in those seven hours of -of out-of-cell time. 
watchdogs have pushed back on these practices. There are also reports that people in the RHU can still be locked up for 23 hours of the day. In fact, a lawsuit filed after Laylene's death points out that Laylene herself often got fewer than two hours of -of out-of-cell time daily. These little nuances allow the Department of Correction to claim that the RHU is distinct. When we reached out to the DOC for this series, they declined a formal interview, but sent an email with bullet point details on Laylene's case. It's a lot of the lines that the DOC has been sticking to for years, that it would be inappropriate to consider the RHU solitary confinement because of the access to special programming. That placement there has nothing to do with gender. That inmates receive up to seven hours a day outside their cell. That they have access to medical care 24-7. But what looks like distinctions on paper between the RHU and solitary confinement start to dissipate when you see how the RHU functions in practice. In Kate's report for the Board of Correction, she makes it clear that at the time of Laylene's death in the women's jail at Rikers, these two units were identical. Traditional solitary confinement and the RHU were in the same physical place, and women housed there got the exact same out-of-cell time and the same programming. At the end of the day, no matter what you call it, this is a really dangerous setting. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a medical doctor. I just have looked into the eyes of people who have been held in solitary confinement and people who've been held in solitary confinement decades ago. And I can see as a human being that there is trauma that exists there. When we get back from the break, We'll see what happened in this unit on the day Laylene died. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On May 30th, just over a week before she died, Laylene was transferred to cell number six in the Restrictive Housing Unit, or RHU, at Rikers. Officers housed her there after she ran into trouble in other parts of the jail, but her seizure disorder made this a dangerous decision. Imagine this. Her cell was 12 feet by 7 feet. That's smaller than the average American parking space. Inside, there was a small window, a ceiling light, a bed, two plastic storage bins on top of one another meant to serve as a table, a metal mirror, a toilet, and a sink. Kate McMahon walked us through the routine outside Laylene's cell on the day she died. So on Friday, June 7th, there were six women who were housed on the unit, spread out in various cells around a day room. Laylene's cell door had a 20-inch by 5-inch window that officers could look through. It's worth noting that some cells in the unit had larger windows meant to make it easier for officers to observe those on suicide watch. Despite Laylene's seizure condition, this is just one more precaution that was not taken for her. While we can never truly know what Laylene went through on the day she died, we do have records of what transpired and what went wrong. Kate and other investigators leaned on a few primary sources to piece together what happened to her. Crucial clues come from the Department of Correction logbooks, information compiled from interviews, and video footage from Genetech, the company that made some of Riker's security cameras. The clips have no sound and show us limited views from the outside of Laylene's cell. But seeing those moments before her death on camera is hard to witness. It's also hard to hear described. So take care as you listen to what happened.
On the morning of June 7th, Laylene was served breakfast at 5.15 a.m. They drop meals off through a meal slot in the doors of these segregation units. Uh, she then took a shower a little later. In order to do that in a segregation unit, a officer must escort you to the shower and back to your cell. Uh, that it appears from the genetic footage that she received her medication from a correctional health staff person. At about 8.30, Laylene was brought to the yard for an hour of rec time. She played basketball and had a few conversations. Later in the mid-morning, Laylene went with an escort to the clinic to discuss her hormone therapy with correctional health services. She was visiting correctional health for about 40 minutes. Officers escorted her back to her cell. That was around 11.20 in the morning. And that's the last time you see her on Genetech video because she entered her cell and then she never came out again. Staff was still responsible for checking on Laylene while in her cell. It's DOC policy that people in segregation should be observed at least once every 15 minutes to confirm signs of life. Signs of life is sort of a vague term. And I think particularly given that many people who are segregated in a cell spend quite a lot of time sleeping because they have nothing else to do and it passes the time. And under those circumstances, searching for signs of life should mean that you see some rise and fall of somebody's chest or the blanket moving, or there's some other indication that someone is breathing. These checks are done by correction officers and observation aides. An observation aide is another person in custody who applies for and is selected to provide suicide prevention and an extra set of eyes on people in segregation units. Their job is really essentially to walk around the unit, observe each person up to six times an hour, engage them and ensure that there are signs of life. Between the aides and the officers, it's unclear whether anyone checking on Laylene had an understanding of her seizure condition. There was no policy in place at the time for officers on a unit to be aware of what someone's medical diagnosis is on that unit unless the person elects to tell them. In the case of Laylene, when she was in a new admissions unit for transgender housing, she informed the officer that she had a seizure disorder, but the officers in the restrictive housing unit reported that they did not know. There's a really stark dissonance here. People at Rikers are surveilled and given little privacy. But when it comes to monitoring health conditions in a way that could save lives, that scrutiny is often lost. This highlights a systemic tension between correctional health services and the Department of Correction. There's really a firewall between the two agencies when it comes to medical information, not relaying that medical information created an additional unsafe condition for Laylene. After returning from the health clinic and re-entering her cell, Laylene was served lunch at a quarter to 12. 
Laylene appeared to want seconds. So at one point on the video, you see the observation aide actually pick up a tray from another cell of someone who refused their lunch and then gave Laylene a second helping of food. Lunch that day was turkey, fried rice, green beans, carrot and celery salad, a banana, and whole wheat bread. It would be her last meal. At around 12.01, the observation aide collected her empty trays and her water cup from her meal slot. The observation aide then refilled her water cup and put it back in her meal slot at 12.02. This is actually the last point in time that we can be sure that she was alive. After lunch, the observation aide continued her rounds, checking on Laylene at least every 15 minutes. The observation aide went past Laylene's cell for the last time at 12.50, and she paused for about 12 seconds outside of the cell window. And that was notable because earlier in the day when she was doing her rounds around cells, and in particular past Laylene's cell, she would stop for maybe a second, look in the window, But here, it was notable to me investigating just that she stopped for 12 seconds to look inside. It signaled to me that maybe what she saw was unusual. And then about 35 minutes goes by where no one walks by her cell at all. More than twice as long as DOC policy says should pass between rounds. It's now 126 almost an hour and a half since Laylene's water cup was refilled, since the last point that we can be sure she was alive. There's two correctional health services clinicians from the mental health unit who appear in the unit. In the first clinician, she walks on the unit, she goes straight to Laylene's cell, and she knocks on her door and gets no response. And then she proceeds to knock on the door for another two minutes. And this is where, if you're watching the video, it seems like something strange is happening. She's leaning on the glass, she's peering in, and then she puts some papers into the meal slot. A few minutes after that, one of the officers joins her next to the door, and they stand outside of her door and talk. They seem to be talking about her and why they're not getting her attention. At one point, the officer takes her keys out to open the meal slot. She taps on the window. She's looking inside with her face pressed up against the window. That time is the clearest indication on the video we reviewed that something is wrong. After that, they walked away. According to Riker's logbook records, An officer wrote shortly after that there was nothing unusual to report. This is around 1.30 in the afternoon, which is notable because it's still quite a significant amount of time before anyone actually enters her cell. A minute later, one of the clinicians came back and leaned on the glass to look inside Laylene's cell again. Another officer joined her, tapping on the window some more. The clinician walked away. But the officer lingered for another 15 seconds before walking away too. 
Later, the officer would say to investigators that Laylene looked like she was asleep, face down. Here's David Shanus, the family's lawyer, again. The reason that doesn't hold water is that they're trained on confirming signs of life. That's what the 15-minute checks are for. It's not just to look into the cell and see that there is a human body located there. The officer returned for three more seconds and then recorded the same message in the logbook. Nothing unusual to report. I suspect that that's why you see some images of the officers in the cell block staring into her cell for long periods of time, probably trying to see if there were signs of life. But given that we now know that there weren't, the question is, if they didn't see signs of life, why didn't they intervene right away? And those questions were never answered and never will be answered. At 1.40, and remember, Leilun's last cup of water was at noon, a third officer looked inside Leilene's window for 45 seconds. Two others joined too, but they all walked away without engaging Leilene. Records in the logbooks say regular checks continue to happen throughout the afternoon, but that's not the case. It's actually another 41 minutes after that, before anyone goes back to her cell. So that's 41 minutes where no one's observing her, which is in violation of the segregation unit policy. 41 minutes. Let that sink in. It's the longest stretch of time during this critical period in the afternoon where no one checked on her cell. Not correction officers, not observation aides, not clinicians. In those 41 minutes, Laylene was completely alone. It's now around 2.30 p.m., nearly two and a half hours since the last time we know for sure that Laylene was alive. After a group therapy session in the day room near Laylene's cell, two officers check on her again. One of the officers had told us that she remembered that Laylene had said earlier in the day, could she be brought out when the television came on? So at this point, the television goes on. The officer goes and looks again in Laylene's cell window, and she stands there for about three seconds and then walks away. Or about two minutes later, The other officer walks over, stands there for almost two minutes, knocking on the door, looking through the window. Still, nobody has walked inside. And at this point, she takes her keys out, indicating that she's thinking about going inside the cell, although she doesn't at this point. Instead, she just kind of opens the gate to the meal slot, closes it, and then the other officer rejoins her carrying handcuffs, which indicates to me that they were considering going inside the cell. They knock on the door again and they look inside the window. And then it's at 2.45, they use the keys to open her cell door for the first time. So that's the first time her door has been opened since 11.20. 
but they still, even though they open the cell door, they do not go in for several minutes. They stand at the threshold of the door, talking to each other, laughing at one point. Laughing. This video footage from outside of Laylene's cell would later be released to the public by Laylene's family and their lawyer. It's a moment that everyone who was closely familiar with Laylene's story has likely seen. It's chilling and hard to unsee. I first saw the clip embedded in an article that had been posted on social media. All I could do was stare at my phone in disbelief. This was undoubtedly an emergency. How callous could you be to take this young woman's unresponsive state so lightly? Here's the family's lawyer, David, again. The first time I saw the footage, I saw in the Bronx District Attorney's Office, they showed the video to Laylene's family and to me, and it was certainly a memorable event. What they were laughing at, I don't know, but obviously knowing that Laylene's dead body lay inside that cell, it was really difficult for the family to see that image because those were the people whose job it was to keep her safe. Amidst their own laughter and conversation, you can see them calling to Laylene. But they still did not go in. Instead, they closed the door. At that moment, a captain appeared on the unit and directs them to open the door again. At this point, the officers reopen the door and they go inside the cell for about nine seconds before coming back out. It's 2.48 p.m. This is when everyone's demeanor starts to change. People start walking more quickly. Everyone has sort of an air of gravitas. There's clearly something wrong at this point. The captain and the officer immediately walk over to the officer station. They call for a medical emergency. They return to the cell with a bag and a defibrillator. And then they go inside her cell and they turn her body over. This was what was reported to us after that at this point when they turn her over, they discover her face is purple and blue and she's likely dead at this point. The officers render some medical aid at this point. They begin chest compressions. The captain, one of the officers used the defibrillator. Other captains start to arrive based on the radio call of the medical emergency that had gone out and then medical staff arrives on the unit at 2.55 and takes over, rendering the medical aid. In a report published by the Bronx DA, the officers described Laylene as unresponsive, pulseless, and breathless. Her body was cool to the touch. The EMS arrives to the unit, about a half hour later, they go inside of the cell with their medical equipment. Emergency personnel performed an hour of CPR on Laylene. She was given six doses of epinephrine, a form of adrenaline, and three doses of Narcan, which is used for overdoses. 
A defibrillator was never able to identify a pulse. And Laylene is pronounced dead at 3.45 in the afternoon. The following day, an autopsy performed by one of the city's medical examiners found that she suffered a, quote, sudden, unexpected death in epilepsy due to or as a consequence of mutation in CACNA1H gene. The manner of death is documented as, quote, natural. These words stand out to me. Natural. Nothing to see here. Nothing unusual to report. This is what the system has to say about Leilene's death. That it's normal, expected, the usual. Alarm bells should have been ringing hours before Leilene's door was finally opened. Someone should have helped her. Maybe the fact that they didn't is normal at Rikers. But nothing about Leilene's death seems natural to me. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us, so we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to Afterlife. Incarcerated lives matter. What people do. Just because I led a certain life doesn't mean I'm not a human being. This is Ruby Verdi. She was in the cell across from Laylene the day she died and witnessed the aftermath at Rikers. We visited her at Taconic Correctional Facility, a women's prison in Westchester County, where she's been incarcerated for about a year and is due to be released soon. Ruby was 19 when she was first incarcerated. She's 31 now. I sat across from her at a square table in a small room with fluorescent lights and old TV and wall hangings with inspirational quotes and butterflies that kind of made me feel like we were in a classroom from the 90s. She seemed shy at first, but opened up quickly. So how many times have you been to Rikers? Probably seven or eight. I think I picked up pretty quickly my first bid, Mm -hmm. you know. I grew up, not in the streets, but I am from Manhattan. I am from East Village. I'm a quick learner. Yeah, okay. Street smart. Yeah. Ruby understands the jail's inner workings. She told us about the officers who worked in the solitary unit where she and Laylene were housed. She knew all about the different dorms and the women's jail, the protocol for what happens after a fight breaks out. She even knows the guy who paints the walls. There's a guy, a tall officer. He looks like Woody. (laughs) From the Toy Story. Yeah, he does painting crew. Okay. Ruby also knew Laylene. She told us about how isolated Laylene felt while she was at Rikers. I remember I brought chocolate chip cookies to the yard. And she was like, you get those on commissary? She's been here for months. She never saw chocolate chip cookies. Never been to commissary. You know, I think she felt very alone. Ruby was one of the last people to talk to Laylene to know what she was thinking in the days before her death. She told me that information inside the jail around Laylene's death was unclear and inconsistent. And she says that officers started rumors. I also remember they were like, oh, that she killed herself. And I think I just heard it around. I think officers were saying it. And I'm like, it's not true. Because she was excited to get her hair done. And, you know, she didn't really have anything. So I was like, I'm going to give you shampoo and conditioner to wash your hair. 
And she's like, oh, hold it, because I'm still going to be there next week. You could give it to me. So if anybody was going to kill themselves, they were not going to plan for next week and be so excited to get her hair done. From the start of this project, I've understood that Rikers is a transphobic place and that transphobia directly affected Laylene's placement in solitary confinement or restrictive housing or whatever they call it. But talking to Ruby, I had a sense of how the staff judged Laylene personally. So how would you describe Laylene's relationship with the officers? I remember one day they were talking about her and they're like, oh, she's laying there with these big titties and this dick. And I'm like, hmm. I was just, I didn't say nothing, but it's just, you guys work in jail. Yeah, this is your job. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, it's not like it's the worst thing. It's not disgusting. Ruby told us that officers would make Laylene cover up her window if she was going to lay naked in her bed. They wanted to block their only view of her, their only way to know if she was safe. And even though Laylene's cell window wasn't obscure the day she died, Ruby described an air of disregard from officers. I remember the officer banging mad hard, and I went and looked up, and I don't think she heard any movement, but she was just like, oh, and kept walking. So I'm just thinking these fucking idiots. I'm not thinking she's dead. And I know that if it was a different officer that day, the minute she wasn't first responding, they wouldn't have waited for the captain. They would have just opened the cell because we're human beings. Ruby's last time seeing Laylene was when officers ushered inmates out of the solitary unit while a crime scene was established. They're like, don't look, don't look. Just go down, go, go. But I had to walk by her cell. Mm. I seen that she was bloated. Her feet were purple. And I know that doesn't happen after being dead for 10 minutes. She was in that room dead for hours. After any death at Rikers, the Department of Correction begins their own preliminary investigation before other city agencies start to get involved. In the midst of this, an investigator approached Ruby to get a statement about what happened. I didn't talk to them. Okay. I cursed them out, actually. I just didn't trust they were going to get the truth out. I felt like they were trying to cover up for the officers, and I knew the officers were wrong. Ruby didn't speak with investigators. She did tell people she trusted about what she witnessed before and after Laylene's death. Her mother, over the phone, and her partner, who was in the same Rikers housing area. Ruby says that once she started speaking about Laylene, she experienced retaliation from officers. She was moved away from her partner. She was searched more rigorously than before. Her commissary was taken away. One day, when Laylene's lawyer visited to gather information, she says officers told him she'd refuse to speak, which she denies. So you think there was a retaliation because, because I think you witnessed... And I kept speaking about it. Mm. Rikers is infamously a black box for information. Very little gets in, and almost nothing gets out. Pushing back on this culture of silence is key to preventing situations like Laylene's from happening again. Acknowledgement that sometimes, and even often, a death in a jail is 
the fault of the jail itself. It's something Dr. Venters and Kate McMahon have spent a lot of time working to illuminate. If you read a press release from Homeland Security or from a jail or prison uh, after somebody dies, they'll list off all the health problems they had. And it's true that the way mass incarceration works, people with a lot of health problems who also disproportionately are people who are LGBTQI or who are black or brown, those people are steered into these places. But what we don't measure is the inherent risk of incarceration itself. I think any death that happens in a jail is a jail attributable death. I don't think you can classify any death in a jail as a natural death because it's, it's an unnatural environment. There were attempts to deny that Rikers was at fault for Laylene's death. People tried to keep the story quiet, but the injustices of Laylene's case would be brought to light. Because of the tireless work of her family, friends, and activists, Laylene's name would become known far and wide. Grief, anger, heartbreak, and the fact that so many people could see themselves in her story would become a driving force in the fight for change. That's next time on Afterlives. I saw a four-sentence article from the New York Post and it just said at the time, transgender inmate was found that that began the process of us beginning to organize on behalf of Lily Polanco. That could be any one of us, any one of my friends, you know what I mean? And it's something that is constantly in the back of our mind. You don't know the nights that you go out that you may not make it back. Having obtained the highest settlement the city has ever paid in the case of a, a death in custody, that was also a symbol that Laylene's life mattered and people needed to be held accountable for it. And I'm the voice of my sister, and I will continue to fight for her. She is not here to fight for herself. She is not here to speak for herself or for you guys. But I'm here. Thank you so much for listening to Afterlives. You can find this episode and future ones on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. Afterlives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. I'm your host and creator, Raquel Willis. Dylan Hoyer is our senior producer and script writer. Our associate producer is Joey Pat. Sound design and engineering by Jess Kreinchich. Story editing by Aaron Edwards and Julia Furlan. Fact-checking by Savannah Hugley. Our show art is by Makai Baldwin. Score composed by Wazi Murray. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Executive producers include me, Raquel Willis, and Jay Brunson from the Outspoken Podcast Network, Michael Alder June and Noel Brown from iHeart Podcasts, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley from School of Humans, and The Cats Company. School of Humans. 
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, coming May 15th, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.